Hello and welcome to the Marketer Meetup podcast. It's so lovely to have you listening today. Today we have uh, the most single most popular talk that we've ever had at the Marketer Meetup over the past seven years that we've been running this community. It's with Professor Mark Ritson uh, of the Mini MBA. In this session, uh, Mark spends the time to address in a very very, very sweary manner, um, uh, marketing for small businesses. It's a topic which is one that is close to my heart as an individual who's worked in small businesses pretty much all my career, but is also one I know that is relevant to uh, 99% of the companies that exist, uh, certainly in the UK right now. Mark begins the session by speaking about, uh, well, you, you will hear the language associated with it, how we are in a challenging environment right now uh, for small businesses, but also then takes the time to practically say what you should be doing as a marketer to get small business marketing right. It's a fascinating session and one that is characteristically Mark. Uh, it's safe to say the conversation goes places where I was expecting at the beginning of the chat, but is nonetheless fascinating, useful, and indeed practical. With all that said, I'm going to get out of the way now, but before I do, I just want to say a big thank you to the featured sponsor for this week, who are Ahrefs, or Hrefs, as they're, they're pronounced properly. Uh, Hrefs are a SEO tool that help you uh, boost your, your SEO marketing. It's as simple as that. They're one of the key players in the industry and have been great supporters of the marketing meetup for quite a long time now. We used their software on a daily basis uh, at the marketing meetup, so it was always a pleasure that they would become a sponsor too. More broadly, we want to say thank you to all the sponsors of the marketing meetup on a, an event like today, which was so big, it's worthy of note that without them, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So a big thank you to Storyblock, Impression, Redgate Software, Cambridge Marketing College and Brand Recruitment. Uh, we want to say thank you to all of them. Um, it, it's really appreciated. With all that said, I now need to get out of the way and I'll hand you over to Mark Ritson. And if I haven't made this any more clear, there is a lot of swearing in this episode. So please, if you've got kids around and it's not something you would like them to hear, then uh, now's the time to put your headphones in. Hello, Joe. Hello, everyone. How are we? Greetings from... Uh... From Wednesday, it's Wednesday here for me and the Aussies who are watching. Um, good news is we're still here. So hello from tomorrow. Um, yeah, it's delightful to be back um, uh, one more time. And what Joe and I thought we'd do is, uh, as Joe mentioned, that, that we had a number of topics we could talk about. And Joe suggested, I think quite correctly, let's talk about smaller businesses because they do tend to get ignored a little bit. And so I'm going to talk for about 20 odd minutes about what smaller businesses can do with respect to marketing, because we often forget about them and they aren't quite the same. And then we'll open it up for general questions on anything. OK, so I'm going to shrink myself down to an appropriate size um, and talk a little bit about why small is is cool. Um, I, and I want to start by pointing out kind of unfortunately that for those of you that work in smaller businesses, it's it's not actually that cool. You know, I grew up on that diet of American stuff that, you know, someone will always raise their hand, as Joe says, and say in any session, 
you know, your your talk is very interesting, but it, all your examples are from big companies. Um, I, you know, I work for a small company. None of this applies to me. And I sort of used to get annoyed with them and go, well, yeah, but you're not really that important and you're probably the same. And and in the end, I realized that, yeah, there are some differences out there. But it's I think you have to start, first of all, with a realization, um, an unfortunate one, that there is this betrayal that, you know, small brands are in some ways advantaged over big brands. You know, they have agility and ninja-like capabilities. And of course, the reality is none of that's really true. There are a couple of side advantages of being small, but for the most part, being small means you're probably going to get fucked by the big brands. And and I think that's, you know, I don't want to depress anyone, but that's the hard reality of it. It's not cool or ninja-like to be small. Um, it, you're going to get, you know, fucked. Uh, let me explain a couple of the many different ways that, that small brands get fucked by bigger brands. This is Paul Dyson, who is very, very, very smart. Um, he's a statistician, a marketing statistician, who for many years ran data to decisions. And he's done many interesting things. But one of the things I think he's most famous for a couple of times now is he looked at with a really, really complex uh analytical model that I definitely don't understand. Um, what are the drivers of advertising profitability? So what, what makes your advertising generate money for you? And he sort of compiled a very nice top 10 list. And it isn't one of those where, you know, it's sort of an arbitrary list. It's a list with different degrees of, of impact. And, you know, you can look at the list later on if you want. It's, it's a, for me, it's, I think it's a fascinating list. But the point is, look at what's at the top there, right? You know, the number one driver of whether your advertising will be successful and make you money hasn't got anything to do with the advertising itself, the media or the creative. It's just whether or not your brand is already big. Again, that's not budget. I'm not saying that a bigger budget um, isn't a good thing, but that's not what Dyson's talking about here. He's saying... If you're already a big player in the market, then your profit multiplier, as you can see here, is you know it's it's a it's a well, I'm pointing the wrong direction is a whacking sixteen times multiplier, which is you know literally sixteen times as important as as laydown. So you get some idea here of how much you're going to get fucked just by being small with advertising. Here's Byron Sharp. He's also a very smart marketing thinker. And he's going to point to a completely different way that you're fucked if you're a small brand. So many of you know about the double jeopardy law, Dergelet models. Um, but what that basically means is you get fucked in, in, in both directions. Um, so here's a, a simple example of how uh, uh, double jeopardy works. It, someone pulled out a, an academic study of uh, plane production, so companies that make aeroplanes. And you'll see here, here's Boeing with a market share of about 46% of the market and a penetration of people that buy planes of 86%, obviously doing a lot better than Embraer, who make those smaller planes with a 4% share and a 16% penetration. Obviously, small brands get fucked because they have much smaller market shares. But remember, it's double jeopardy. So smaller brands aren't just fucked because they have smaller market share. They're also smaller because... From each of the clients, they receive 
less loyalty, less orders in this case. So Boeing don't just have a 46% market share. The average number of purchases per customer for Boeing, as you see here, is 100. And the average for Embraer is 37. So again, you, you know, you, you lose on market share, you lose on loyalty and penetration as well. You get fucked by ESOV. So many of you will know excess share of voice. It's one of our most important models. And it lays out that all important relationship, the equilibrium between share of market and share of voice, which is scarily connected, as you see here with that blue line. But that's not what the equilibrium looks like when you actually gather the data from a market. It normally looks more like this. There's a curve in the equilibrium when you actually study the data. And the curve is there, no surprise, because small brands get fucked compared to big brands in ESOV. So here's some nice data from Nielsen showing that if a brand, the blue box there, has a market share of greater than 10%, it can expect to grow about 0.4% on average in a typical year. But if it has excess share of voice of more than 10%, if it has that you know, more share of voice than share of market, you can see here the green bar, it's going to grow by a percentage point. Now, that's a big brand with more than 10%. Compare that to a small brand. Yeah, it's exactly the same law, excess share of voice of of of, 10, of less than 10%. And you begin to see again there that small brands just don't have it as good. So to put that in context, if we took the CMO club, which is this giant club run by Salesforce, I'm making this up, but they probably have about a 10% share of marketing get-togethers. And I'll bet you they, are, they don't have to spend 10% of the total share of voice of that category because big brands, actually, as you can see here, spend a little bit less than their share of market in terms of share of voice, and they still maintain their share. But here's Joe, through no fault of his own, getting fucked here with the marketing meetup. Let's say they have a global share of the market of 2%. Now, look at where that brown line is. Look what he's got to do, right? In order to maintain that share of market, he's got to do a 4% share of voice. You see? The CMO club gets an 11% share of market from a 9% share of voice. The marketing meetup gets a 2% share of market from a 4% share of voice. It's completely unfair. But again, it's evidence of why small brands are fucked over and over again simply by the fact that they're small. So I'm going to try and like be positive and like uplifting and shit. But first, I just want everyone to be aware of just how fucked you are when you're small and, and what's against you. And the, the story I have to tell you before we talk about all these optimistic ninja strategies is that most brands have two options. They either stay small or they go out of business because it's not fair. And, and I have to point that out. Anyway, that, that's not why I'm here, right? I mean, I'm not here to say you're fucked and you're going to go out of business. The point is, what do you do given those odds? And I wanted to take you through 10 different little things that maybe can help smaller brands get bigger and avoid the fucking that we've just talked about. So number one, constant market orientation. So this is something that I think small brands can do better than big brands. But there's a danger here. So the real danger is there's this sort of crazy lunatic founder prototype 
he or she hangs out in their this is actually Rick Moranis, but that's a different story. But they hang out in their garage inventing shit. They come up with some amazing invention and it changes the market forever and they make a bazillion dollars, right? That's kind of the myth that we talk about. But there's a real danger that that ends up with people smoking their own crack, right? Metaphorically speaking, in that you end up and you lock yourself away working on a prototype, working on some magical piece of software. You end up, frankly, starting to get too close to the product and believing this thing is more magical than it really is. If you've ever read any Kotler, our kind of 20th century champion of marketing, Phil Kotler talks about finding an unserved or underserved market and then creating a product to serve it. But I really don't think that's what small businesses should do. Instead, I would portray it more as being a circular, continual movement. What I mean by that is you might have a great idea as a small business. The sooner and the more often, though, you can turn the circle from having an idea to talking to potential customers, to bringing those customers into the process, refining your idea, prototyping your idea, testing your idea, lead user inputs into your idea, turning the circle between you as a small entrepreneurial business and the market. So it almost becomes blurry. I think that's one of the things smaller businesses can do that bigger businesses struggle to do, constantly turning the wheel. Number two, reversing the marketing process. This is more major, but I think there's a strong case for this. So if you work for a big business and you're well-trained in marketing, you know how the process works. We have market orientation, so we go out and gather market research. We use that market research, especially the quantitative bit, to produce a segmentation of the market. From the segmentation of the market, we pick our target segments, we do our positioning, we develop our objectives, and then off we go to tactical land to launch the product, the price, the distribution, and we make a wonderful success. This is great, but the problem that so many small businesses encounter is they simply don't have enough money or time for quantitative research. So there is a, an alternative model that I recommend for smaller businesses. As we've already seen, you, you want to be market-oriented. You want to constantly turn the wheel. But stage two of the marketing process can be a broader third-party built market segmentation model. I'm talking about quite a, uh, a generic model using basic data, meaningful actionable grid stuff, but creating essentially a map of the market without much detail, but at least with market sizing and some indicative idea of who does what. Now, if we can create that, we can size it, and we can do some targeting. Where are you going to focus, at least initially, your efforts? Once you've done targeting, then we're going to do research. So rather than doing research early on to build the map of the market, we're actually going to do what I would say is targeted ethnography, which sounds fancier than it is, which is you've picked a target customer. Now go and find eight, nine, ten of them and spend some time with them to understand what's going on, having already decided that's where you're going to play. When you do that, you can basically answer the questions of positioning, objectives, and what tactics would or wouldn't work 
as you spend time with those customers. So although I hate to mess around with the green model because it's the right way to do marketing, for smaller businesses, I do think there's a case for essentially taking out research and dropping it in later on. Number three, uh, back to the point of research, don't sweat the quant numbers too much. So in most bigger businesses, we use the qual and the quant to build our market picture, right? We're trained in both. We usually use panel data. We like our brand tracking. They're essential things. I don't think you should worry in a smaller business if you don't have that information. And you don't for good reason. Money, time, and frankly, even if you had the money and the time, most customers wouldn't have heard of your brand to complete the, the quantitative survey anyway. So don't worry too much about quant in the beginning. Instead, this idea of, of ethnography, of going out in a very qualitative way with small numbers, going deep and spending time with customers, watching them, talking to them, interacting with them in very unscientific ways and getting to know them is a big advantage and something, again, larger companies can't do. And that ethnography and that spending of time with customers allows you then to test new things out, learn, course adjust, and again, evolve in a way that larger companies just don't have the capability to do. So in the beginning, don't sweat the quant numbers. Number four, pick on the big guy. You know, again, in the bigger companies, we focus on distinctiveness, we position very clearly. But how do I break into this market if I'm a small brand without really the resources to create that share of voice? Well, there's two ways to position a brand. The standard way is to position to the target customer. This is what I offer. But there's a second route that we are no less about, which is you can do that, but at the same time, you can also position against an alternative, more famous brand in the market. This is what I stand for, and I stand for it because this guy is a wanker, and I'm not a wanker. Do you see what I mean? There's no reason you can't do both channels at the same time. Avis famously did it by pointing out they were second um, and, and to Hertz is first, and they would therefore try harder because Hertz were basically a bunch of shits. Um, Virgin spent a very successful 10 years positioning against British Airways for basically being British Airways. And a lesser known fact, Ben and Jerry's built their business from a war in the 1980s with Hagendas, which was absolutely a strategic confection from the, the beginning. Shit, I did it. I mean, you know, I'm happy to admit I did it. You know, about 10 years ago now, we had the big debate with, with Byron Sharp. Byron at the time was significantly more famous than me. And I was just trying to position against Byron, not because I don't like him, but because it was a surefire way to allow a smaller brand to get more purchase in the market. And the reason this works so well is, first of all, you earn what I would call shadow salience. So just by being on the same stage as Byron Sharp, you you know you bask in the salience he's already got. Second, you have that second mover positioning advantage where the other brand has already taken a position in the market and they enjoy that position. You come in later so you can find a hole or a gap in how they play it and position against them. And the best bit about this one is only small brands 
can do or can win this battle. Yeah? Big brands wouldn't go into this kind of battle because it wouldn't make sense for them to do it. It also wouldn't make sense for them to respond to the little brand having a go at them either. So you kind of have this lovely strategic picture of how maybe to position the brand. Number five, poor person's pricing. So in a big company, we can do loads of great stuff when it comes to pricing. We can run large market tests. We can run conjoint. We can do Van Vestendorp pricing meters. And we can basically pretty accurately work out what the price should be to make the most money. You can't do that in a small company. Even the Van Vestendorp involves a proper representative survey. So for smaller companies, I'd recommend a slightly different path. First of all, just because you're not going to do formal pricing research to begin with, make sure you understand the power of price. It, it's a long story that I won't go into here. But if, if you want to understand the profitability of your small business, you need to understand how a single percentage point increase in price will have a significant impact on profitability, much more than selling more or reducing costs would have. The second lesson is start high. You can always go lower, much, much harder to go from a low price to a high place. So if, if in doubt, err on the side of premium. Most managers do the opposite and underprice their products. The poor person's approach to pricing is if you don't have any other data, try and aim for a rough average hit point of losing about a third. If you're in B2B, for example, losing about a third of your pitches. Yeah. Um, when someone asks you to pitch for a business, you don't want to win much more than half because it sounds weird, but if you start winning more than half, it's a surefire signal that you're probably underpricing things. So you're trying to lose a fair amount. And if you start to win everything, you need to put your price up. So you start losing about a third of pitches again. Now that sounds mad, right? Why would you want to lose business? Well, over time, if you build your brand properly and your product improves, you'll be making far more profit from far less production, from far less customers and going on a much better journey because you've understood proper pricing dynamics. Remember to frame the price, whatever the price you have. Remember that the way we present a price is inevitably going to be more important than the price itself. Loads of people always ask me, why did you call it the mini MBA? Like Germans, I've got lots of Germans, of course, they hate the word mini, right? They just, for some reason, Germans make them want to vomit that they're doing a course called the mini MBA, you know? And the point is, it's framing, right? We're framing a 2,000 pound course against a 100,000 pound course. Now, they're not quite the same thing, but I, you know, I know enough about pricing from the beginning to know that's how we wanted to present things. And most importantly, remember never ever discount ever. Yeah. Um, again, for a multitude of different reasons, we won't go into here, but I really am convinced that the reason we so, see so many stupid business killing discounts is that too many marketers think if they run a 30% promotion, they're going to lose 30% of their profits. That's not how this works. I find it very hard to believe anyone can be profitable at 30% off ever. So be careful with promotions. They start you on a slippery slope um, that's very difficult to fix. Uh, our next uh, challenge, have a strategy first. So again, there's a tendency in small businesses particularly in marketing, 
to spend every day working very hard, just fighting tactical fires. That's understandable. But if you don't give yourself time for strategy, you'll just keep fighting those fires forever and you'll never really get anywhere. So remember, strategy is best described as what we do not do. Challenge yourself to say, what are we not going to do that maybe everyone else does? Strategy is about making choices, selfish choices for your small business. And this, you know, if there's one thing I wanted to communicate in this talk, it was that if you work for a small brand, strategy and the idea of choice and what you don't do is way more important than for a big business. Sure, McKinsey or Procter & Gamble have to have strategy. But if a small brand doesn't have it, doesn't have clarity here, doesn't make choices, doesn't focus their resources, doesn't say no, then there's very little hope that it will survive. So strategy and choice are more important to a small business than a big one. And remember, ultimately, you're saying no, you're making choices in three key marketing areas. One, who we're going after and who we're not. Two, what we want to position and what we don't. And finally, what we want to achieve and also what we don't. Be choiceful in a small business because if you spread yourself too thin, it won't work. Uh, a very common one for number seven. So probably the most common question I've had from people that have done the mini MBA from smaller companies is we don't have quant data. We can't set quant objectives. And therefore, we can't do a lot of the brand planning process. And that's partly true, right? In a bigger business, we build funnels with quant data. We set objectives. And those objectives are a big part of setting proper, accurate budgets. So what do you do in a small business where you don't have that information? I would recommend you create two a priori pots of money at the start of each year. A long pot, which is the money designed for the top of the funnel. Awareness, consideration, salience, brand building. Remember, the long of it, the rough definition is you're not asking for anything specific. There's no particular response, right? This is a long-term thing you're trying to achieve. So a certain proportion of your marketing budget, don't have to have a specific objective, focused on top of funnel stuff. And then the other proportion focused on the shorter activated bottom of funnel stuff aimed at particular segments and getting a specific ROI from them by achieving a sale or something very close to a sale. And remember, again, a very common question, the long and the short of it, the great work of Field and Burnett talks about the 60-40 rule, which absolutely applies as an average, but it changes with context, with category, with all kinds of things. One of the things it changes with is the age of the business. So if you're a relatively young business, let's say launched in the last uh, two years, the actual 60-40 proportion is more than reversed. So as you see here, it becomes 65% activation in years one and two. That's the optimum split. And only 35% for uh, longer-term brand building. So the answer to the question is, yeah, you do start out with a much greater focus on activation for, for reasons that are pretty obvious, right, given the early stage in the business. But interestingly, after that first year, you can see how the optimum budget split begins to move more towards brands. So you don't want to be hanging around too long. And the reality is small brands like big brands 
benefit from the advantages of brand building just as much. Number eight, a big one. You want a small branded house. So in the world of brand architecture, so brand architecture just means the arrangement of the brands within your company. There are four main positions in the famous brand relationship spectrum. On one end of the continuum, there's a branded house. Famously, IBM, everything is a single brand. On the other end of the continuum is a house of brands, LVMH, where there's 75 brands and the corporate brand is just a holding company. And then there's a whole bunch of intermediate positions in the middle. Most entrepreneurs lack discipline. Most small business marketing people like to make new stuff. And as a result, they make an elementary error of creating too many brands. You don't want to have a house of little brands here in the first 5, 10, 15 years of your company's existence. Yeah, You want as few brands, ideally just one brand, to focus all of your resources, time, effort, profitability, tracking, investments, etc. Yeah, So a single branded house. And I'll give you a story to, to explain why. Many years ago, I got very, very drunk with a senior person from Reckitt. And one of Reckitt's favorite brands is V, which is a 100-year-old hair removal cream, predominantly used by women. But over the last five or six years, this senior person from Reckitt had seen a dramatic increase in Veet sales, and he couldn't understand why. No new customers. Customers weren't getting hairier. There wasn't an increase in price. So why was more and more Veet being sold? And the answer was because men had changed the fashion of pubic hair. In the 1970s, it was, you know, commonplace for masculinity for us to be very hairy and have, you know, a large urban sprawl. But as we entered the new millennium, it became more and more, I'm, I'm, this, I'm not aware of this, but it became more and more cool to have a, a, I believe the terminology is shaven haven, right? And to have no pubic hair at all. So what partners were doing was stealing their wives and girlfriends V and in a very manly way, rubbing enormous amounts of it all over uh, their extremities and using up a shit ton of V, resulting in the, the female member of the household going, Jesus, where's all my V gone? And the purchase cycle was going mad, right? Anyway, so Reckitt's realized they had an opportunity. They could make a hair removal cream for men. And they set off on a little mission to discuss what it would look like and what they would call it. And in the end, they launched Veet for Men. So why did they launch Veet for Men and not some completely different brand? And the answer is very simple. Reckitt, like most smart companies, doesn't want any more brands. Brands aren't that good for companies, it turns out, particularly after the first one or two. They cost you money. They spread resources. Now, this is Reckitt, a multi-billion pound company. Yeah, Don't be silly in a small company. Ideally, you want a branded house and as few products as possible to focus your efforts on. Number nine, let the brand move. So once a year, uh, in a surprising uh, bit of uh, magnumosity, mag if there is such a word, I do a bit of teaching for the Sephora Accelerate program, which is a wonderful program in America, trying to get uh, women of color 
to become the founders of beauty products of the future. It's still in beauty, embarrassingly dominated by white men. And so Sephora, which is a wonderful company, invests a lot of resources in getting a new, uh, a new generation of founders for a new generation of beauty brands. And one of the things I work a lot with when we work with, with the Accelerate program with these wonderful founders is explaining to them that their brand and their vision, which so far has done maybe $100,000, $200,000 of sales, needs to be allowed to move around a bit because it isn't yet fully in the place that it's going to be. And I, I use the analogy of, of the difference in planning a child's life and then watching that life unfold. You know, I have a six-year-old and I had all kinds of plans for what she was going to do and everything else. But once they arrive, I mean, my, you know, my daughter's fundamentally a, uh, what, what would I say here? She's not exactly playing by the rules, shall we say. I mean, she's going to be a car thief or an international, if we're lucky, an international jewel thief. But some form of thief appears to be where she's going in life. It doesn't matter how much I had a plans for doctors and lawyers, she's got a, a completely different plan in mind and she's she's well on the way of doing it. And that feeling of, hang on a minute, all these plans are non, it's moving this way and I can't stop it, is very much what it's like. I think when you have a brand in the early stages, as it grows, let it find its place. You know, when I launched the mini MBA in 2016, I did quite a lot, well, you would expect this, I did quite a lot of research. And the positioning originally, I think, was MBA applied, and whatever this means now, a cut above other programs, right? What happened was that surprisingly wasn't too far off. If you look at where we where we are now like, permanently landed, the, the mini MBA is an MBA level program. It's very applied and, and practical. But the thing that we've adopted from the market is convenience which was never part of the vision to begin with and i think you have to let the you know for example we used to give out tons of readings and now we're trying to be 100 podcast because it turns out busy marketers don't have time to read you know nine pages of a harvard manuscript so convenience came in because that's where this brand wanted to go and we had to let it tell us that and I think that's a good lesson as you are in the smaller, earlier stages. And finally, enjoy it. The great Anita Roddick was famous for saying this. Well, great founder of Body Shop. And Anita Roddick always said, if it isn't fun, then don't do it anymore. Do you know what I mean? And she made a good point. She also said something else very interesting. If you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito in the room, which I thought was a very uplifting idea for smaller brands. I don't buy it for a fucking second, by the way. I just think it's not. So I don't think mosquitoes do very well generally. I think most of them get killed about three seconds into existence. But it was an uplifting and positive thought that I thought we could end with. All right, Joe, back to you in the studio. They were my, we will share the slides with the troops. They're the 10 things that I think smaller brands can and should do. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. I think that is uh, by a long, long way the most sweary presentation we've ever had. Um, very good. Ab absolutely fabulous. Uh, very, very enjoyable. And thank you very, very much. I, I love the, uh, the the giving on one hand of, of the mosquito quote, and then the, the very, very quick taking away of I do not believe it for one second. So so thank no, you. No, no. <laughs> I don't want I don't want it to get I don't want it to get to, you know, Simon Sinek at any point. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Uh, let's open up to questions. So, uh, folks, 
there's there's 34 open questions in the Q&A right now. Um, if you see 35, um, if you see a question that you like, give it a thumbs up. That will mean that we prioritize it in the Q&A. Uh, we're going to try and uh, move this as well as, well as we can through the Q&A. Uh, so the top one comes from Emily, actually. And Emily, it says, uh, any tips for assessing brand awareness um, in a B2B world without spending uh, money? So um, if we could broaden that out in the first instance, because uh, there was actually a few questions in the Q&A about measuring brand awareness. And this feels relevant because, uh, particularly in these smaller businesses, when we don't have the budgets to go hell for leather on, on stuff that we we don't know we can measure so how would you start measuring brand awareness i i think if you really if you really want a metric mm -hmm. and i agree you're not going to go out and do a, an annual track mm -hmm. for the most part right i mean if you're well let let me answer it two ways if you're a small grocery brand right a, a, a regional yogurt let's say there's absolutely no reason you couldn't spend seven or eight thousand pounds on a bit of panel research, which would give you brand awareness, brand perceptions, your funnel, the competitor's funnel, all for, yeah, seven or 8,000 pounds. And I know that because I was talking to one of my graduates in September. He works for a, uh, a curry, a, a British curry producer, and he just spent, I think it was eight grand to get all of that data. So the first thing is, if you're small, but you're B to C, let's we you don't have to go and use you know one of the large players for a hundred grand to get amazing data if you know what you're doing panel data changes everything so you can get brand awareness and the rest of the funnel pretty quickly and pretty cheaply having said that if you don't have that money or you just don't have access to pa consumer panels the only other option you've got, if you want a metric for it, is to look at the, the growing share of search literature. So share of search is a fascinating variable. And, and again, Les Binet's all over it. And so is James Hankins. Have a look at what Les has done freely on YouTube about why it's such an interesting variable. And then think about how you could use it as a, I mean, it's a, it's free data, basically. It takes a bit of time to set up or hire someone very locally to do it for you. And there are more and more people offering this service to benchmark your share of search versus the other uh, identified competitors. It doesn't quite do the same thing, but it may do something better than awareness, which it may capture which brands are actually more salient and are coming to mind in buying circumstances rather than just in the category, who do you think about? So I'd say share of search is your other option if you want a metric. Nice, fabulous. And and do you think, so we were speaking about this before we went live and, and, and so one of the things that we observed and uh, or I observed is that brand awareness spend is probably decreasing at the moment because of recessionary forces um i don't know why i said it like that because of the recession uh and does it become increasingly important right now and how do we start to begin to have those conversations about spending on brand because it feels important i feel like as marketers we know it is but actually having those conversations in a in a in a way which gets across the message is quite difficult have you got experience with those those conversations and and, and how yeah. do you begin to approach it Look, it's easy for me to say it, but it's true. In times of recessionary crisis, the 
the right thing to do is to spend most of your money maintaining your brand spend. Mm -hmm. Because in many categories, there isn't much short spend to go. The guys at LinkedIn have an article this week about that they normally have a 95-5 rule. You know, you want 95% of the people are of your customers are not in market right now. And it's now a 99 to one rule because in many categories, 99% of the market isn't in right now. So the short-term activation stuff doesn't make a lot of sense. What does make sense is maintaining spend, especially if other competitors are pulling out during this hopefully short-lived period, because brand investments are there for the next two, three, four years. And, and we're not expecting the recession to last quite that long, even in the UK. The other interesting uh, eventualities, I've just, that my, I think my article in Marketing Week comes out later today. I've been working with System One, the advertising research company. We looked at about 18,000 British ads. And we looked at long and short ads. And what we found was something very interesting. Um, if you have a great brand building ad, it does also have massive short-term sales implications. But if you have an amazing short-term activation ad, it has absolutely no impact, in fact, declining impact on the brand versus a less effective short-term ad. So what's emerging from this large data set is the long actually is the long and the short, the short is the thing to worry about because it's not doing any long-term good for your brand and it's just mopping up the existing demand without creating any new stuff. So I think that the big counter argument would be the long of it. Brand building is a great long-term way to maintain presence in the market, but it also is going to do you some good in the short term as well. Fabulous. I mean, it's so reassuring. I mean, it, it, it's a difficult argument to make, but with data points like that, it feels like it's starting to get to that place. And I remember you, you were saying, um, went to the Marketing Academy session, the top 10 moments from, from last year. And you, you were saying that you felt like this time felt different in the sense that this yeah. felt a bit different, that that message around branding seems to be landing slightly differently. You know, hold the, hold the line, continue spending on brand. We, we've definitely done it better, Joe. I mean, everyone, I got slightly annoyed at the end of the year because you know what it's like in marketing? It, it, we get a general consensus, which is true, by the way, and borne out by data, that you do want to maintain your investment in brand, you know, for the good of the company, but also because others pull back and you can win. But you've always got three or four, well, what's the right word, you know, uh, alternative thinkers <laughs> who want to come up with these stupid counter arguments because we live in a world of counter arguments. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, back to that point we made late last year, I think this is a recession for the first time where we've gone into it protecting or trying to protect brand spend more than ever before nice i'm going to move it on to uh one of the the first question mentioned mentioned b2b uh specifically and, and i know that you get you get big and small company and you get b2b and b2c it seems to be the the variations of of the conversation that you have so given the the small marketing context here do you have any observations on the difference between B2B and B2C? Does it exist? Yeah. Is it? It doesn't, it doesn't actually exist. I mean, it does exist, but not really. So what I mean by that is if you notice, and it happens to me, whenever I teach a cohort on mini MBA, the first week people go, I work in services. Does this apply to services? I work in B2B. Does this apply to B2B? And it's like, hey, 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 it definitely applies, right? 
we keep talking about B2C as if it's the same, right? That's selling mascara, shoes, yogurt, fart cream. I don't know what, you know what I mean? There's massively <laughs> different, massively different businesses, yeah? And so I think what we have to all recognize is we have a lot more in common than we have different from each other. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're selling industrial portaloos, it's a slightly different thing than selling ice cream. But so selling ice cream versus selling, you know, baked beans. There's some different dynamics there as well. So, yeah, I think we overstate it a little bit. And what's been great about the B2B Institute at LinkedIn is that they've done a lot of empirical research to show it's pretty much the same even though we all protest too much about it. So, yeah, I, 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 there are differences, but much more similarities that we should think about. Nice. Thank you, mate. <laughs> the, uh, the chat's going off at the moment with uh, <laughs> comments about fart cream. So, uh, fart so cream, that... very important. If you haven't got your fart cream yet, I've got some recommendations. <laughs> like that. Uh, Mark Smith says fart cream on hot apple pie is delicious. It's the way to go. It's the way to go. Honestly, mate, this presentation has not gone to places where I necessarily expected it to go over the duration of this past 48 minutes. So, yeah, I, thank you very much for that. <laughs> I, I actually, I got in pubic urban sprawl earlier, which I was particularly keen on. I wanted, I want to reiterate pubic <laughs> no, no. urban sprawl. No, no, we're aware that you got that in. <laughs> happy, happy. Uh, so let's take a question from from Sarah because I, I think it's a it's a great one. Taking us back to the beginning of the presentation, and uh, away from fart cream, and away from fart cream. You know, I mean, we've got you know a little bit of time. Why not focus on what that more? <laughs> um, so at the beginning of the presentation, we spent a little bit of time speaking about ethnographic uh, research. And, and Sarah's asking, uh, when you go in to do that ethnographic research or, or market research in particular, what are the types of questions that you're you're asking? So, I mean, ethnographic is about observing in the first first and foremost, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's about observing and interacting. It's about the as far from doing a survey as you can get, right? So, the key to corporate ethnographic research on customers is just to get amongst it, get a backstage pass. And, and don't have any prepared uh, prepared questions because they kind of defeat the object. The key is to go in there, pretend to be an idiot, which is easier for some of us than others, and ask the customer that you're with to help explain what the hell's going on. And eventually they do. And so all you're doing is going, what's what's going on? I don't get this. Right? That, that they're the questions, right? Oh, you mean this? And it begin, becomes an interaction. I mean, I've done it throughout my career. Um, all over the place. You know, we do it. We had a big problem famously in Japan many years ago with a medical device. And we'd done all this quantitative research. It was like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. We just went to people's homes who were using the device. And it took us literally a morning to go, oh, right, that's it then. We'll go, that's fine. You know what I mean? It's it. The, the ethnography is an unfortunate word for it because it makes it sound all fancy and clever, right? Mm -hmm. Ethnography should really be, like, if we were German, we'd just create one of those wonderful German words where we just crunch it all together, and it would just be, get your ass out of the market and go and talk to some fucking customers, right? That, that would be the name of it in a German hyphenated way, right? Because that's all ethnography is. You're not going to learn about customers sitting in that seat in the middle of head office looking at your computer screen. Get your ass into the market it's confronting 
because you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And uh, for a large amount of time, nothing happens. But eventually you come out understanding everything, right? I mean, it, it started a long time ago, but A.G. Laffley, the, the, the double CEO of P&G, was the famed practitioner of it. Even when he was the CEO of P&G, he'd go into people's houses once a week. They knew he was coming. And um, he'd sit there with the, with the family as they got ready for school and ask them questions about the different brands that P&G made. And like he said, people would say, you can't justify that now. You're the CEO of P&G. And he's like, it's more important now than ever before. Mm-hmm. My big, big boss at LVMH, Bernard Arnault, who's usually the on, on Elon's bad days, the richest man in the world, spent every weekend in stores watching people buy his products and then he'd go in and talk to them and the shop assistants about what was going on and what they thought and everything taking photos and sending to the ceos the next day you you cannot overstate the value of getting into the market you know there's a big debate what's the best form of market research the greatest source of insight it's definitely ethnography particularly in b2b where you can get into the company and have them show you around meet all the people, see what they do. It's 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 a great opportunity. And all we're really saying with all these fancy words is if you work in marketing, find some customers and hang out with them and get them to tell you what's going on. Nice. I love that. Thank you very much. That was concise and wonderful. There was a, Emily says in the chat, get your ass into the market. That's a good takeaway, to be honest. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. That's actually what ethnography means in Greek. <laughs> sort of i like it a lot cool let's let's go to uh to carl we're kind of ping-ponging a little bit all over the place but in, in a good and productive way so thank you mark for for your answers so far it's really useful uh so we've got carl who says uh mark what tips do you have for pricing when you don't have big data to crunch for example when most of your work is custom so I guess we can take those as two questions, maybe the, the big yeah. first. Go go with, the, I mean, it, it, it is a common situation, right? It's so important to get pricing right. The advantage of custom work is that you can do that losing a third of it when you make a proposal uh, approach. I mean, I started life um, with my own business as a consultant when I start, when I was a professor at London Business School. And I can remember, I think I charged a thousand pounds. It might have been 1500 quid to do this bit of analysis of data for, for a, a company based in London. And before the day was out, having quoted for the work, the guy rang me back and gave me a second engagement. And I was like, oh, I got two jobs. And then, no, I'm not making this up. One of his mates who worked in the same company rang me up later that week and he booked me as well. And I'm like, whoa, I'm great at this, right? And only later I'm going, right, I'm a London Business School professor and I'm obviously about a tenth of what everyone else is, right? So the lesson is if you do custom work, it runs against the grain, but keep ratcheting up the price that you propose. And if you aren't losing some of those clients, there's something wrong with your price. The McKinsey study from back in the great old days was if a, if a marketer gets the price wrong, 90% of the time, it's that they've underpriced the product, which is a much bigger problem than overpricing in many scenarios. So remember you have that bias, that, that imbalance, that your pricing is probably too cheap. And, you know, you can go too far the other way. Sure you can, but try and balance it with each job so that you, you're losing a bit of work. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Sales 
and not the lifeblood of business. Profit is the lifeblood of business. And price is all about profit. Nice. I love that. And there's part of me which is a little bit, not, not cynical, but interested because in my experience working in smaller companies, there's, there's often been a founder who's, who's sort of set the price and then that's kind of it, you know, and, and, yeah. and I think that's a wider trend in marketing as well, generally, which is marketers aren't involved in pricing. Do you think there's a wider trend right now where we're, we're not just, we're not being involved in, in, in these conversations yeah. in the same way and for sure important to reclaim that, or do we accept that marketing is changing? what do we do well well look first of all you're right joe so we've we are there's some area without being a fogey there are some areas where marketing has gone backwards and one of them is we've become by and large a communications group you know um i, I see it all the time people I, I i did a lot of uh writing about the burger king advertising and how shithouse it was and I've said, look, Burger King aren't as good at marketing as McDonald's. And someone would say, I don't think it's that. I think you'll find that they don't have as good a burger and their locations aren't as good. And I'm like, dude, that's marketing. It's just you don't know what you're talking about, right? There was this obsession with the ads, the ads, the ads. And that's come to your point, Joe, at the expense of pricing. So, yeah, we we are, for the most part, away from that. There are a few exceptions, Pret-a-Manger is a great exception, but most companies now don't trust the marketers to do pricing. And for good reason, most marketers haven't got a fucking clue how to set a price. So mm. there's, there's reasons on both sides. I don't worry too much about that. I don't find that to be a source of great concern. It just means the marketers that I and others train in, in pricing are worth much, much more than others. And the companies they work for do much, much better, which is all I'm interested in. I don't want to fix the whole of marketing. I don't want all of marketing to get good at pricing again, because that would remove the competitive advantage that I and the other good marketers have. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, I'm not going to hide the information, but at the same time, it it and it doesn't delight me that that most marketers have lost all the interest and ability in price. But it does create a really rather fantastic niche for marketers who actually can do marketing. Yeah, bang on. Um, there's the question here related to the topic um, and, and probably more specifically to the first question, which is from Amy, uh, who's brilliant in, in, in herself. But Amy asks on the pricing point on starting high rather than low. Uh, <laughs> and probably without just saying you're fucked. Uh, potentially, <laughs> how would you suggest going about it if you did start low and wanted to go high because the service service offering has improved? Yeah, it's 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 a real real challenge through nobody's fault. You you want to get a foothold in the market, you then find out you've underpriced and you may improve as well, and then you're desperate to improve prices. I mean, the good news is if there can be any good news from the recession. The current inflationary uh, climate has allowed, as far as I can see, a, a very large proportion of British companies to get their prices up way beyond where inflation is, right? If you look at what Tesco have been saying, um, they're pretty sure that many of their suppliers are actually jumping, uh, have jumped the shark with their pricing. So this might be peculiarly one of those times where you have to say, I'm going to put my prices up beyond an inflationary level. Mm -hmm. The only other thing you can do then is use 
alternative products um, in terms of sub brands or sub products that have a different level of quality from the original one and which you kind of position against the existing product. But again, I've got to be honest rather than, you know, if you'd have <laughs> asked me this question 20 years ago, I'd have, I'd have given you all these bullshit theories of how you do it. You're in a bit of a toilet there, right? And it's a very, it's like, I must, I get asked, I would say probably three times a month, no exaggeration. We've been overusing sales promotions. Our competitors have been overusing sales promotions. How do we get out of this situation? And the answer for the most part is you you don't. You don't now. That's what we know. Right? You've, you've created, you've shat your bed and now you must sleep in it for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? I, there is no fix for that situation by and large, other than to get another bed in another room, which is a very expensive thing to do. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, let's take, uh, it's, it's three o'clock and, and Mark's been very generous and said that you can hang about. I, I, I don't propose that we do it for too long, but uh, as folks will be dropping off the call uh, around now, I want to get this question in uh, because you have been, uh generous to us as well mark which is uh from marcus uh, which is very close to the top which is my question would be how suitable is the mini mba for a small business owner ha. <laughs> well yeah you served me that one up there yeah, thanks Joe. yeah <laughs> very suitable i mean we we um about a 25 percent to 30 percent of the marketers that come on the mini mba in marketing um work in a department of less than five marketers often just one marketer so yeah, I think it's as suitable for for small marketers as it is for big marketers. It's the marketing songbook, right? Um, so yeah, and we know we 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 do test this as we should. We slice the you know we have a night well, we have a plus seventy eight net promoter score rating. We slice that MPS by big company, small company, services B two B, with no significant difference. So yeah, um, most small marketers are very happy very happy with the course. Um, they always want more small marketing examples, but I've got Google, you know, and Procter and Gamble on the course as well. So there's always a balance there, you know. And, and in fact, I had, had a, a great smile in September at the feedback because I've really pushed more B two B examples in, and I got a solid number of complaints from B two C marketers about having more B two C examples. So yeah, there's plenty. There's it, it. It would be great for small marketers, and there's plenty there. That's brilliant. Uh, I can I can speak for myself. Um, again, I feel like I said this this time last year uh, in in our, in our previous session that you're not paying me to say this, uh, but but you did give me a framework to to hang my marketing activity off. You know, and for me that was where the biggest uh, the biggest benefit was because it was it was a diagnosis strategy tactics. Uh, it's a way to approach any marketing challenge, which honestly did make a big big difference so um thanks John. you can have that one um we want to pick up from a, a question here from david because uh he asks are there any marketing channels or types of channels that suit smaller businesses and i want to pick up on that question specifically because previously you'd spoken about the more channels that you you get involved with the better and yep. i've heard you make a really great point in the past about uh, how small businesses can approach this uh the more channels the better and i wonder yeah. if you could speak to that uh briefly because i think that's that was a really yeah good- yeah i mean there is again lots of evidence that you want to spread your money across multiple channels not focus on just one 
many explanations and potential explanations for that, but multi-channel integration, diversity, works better than pumping everything into your favorite channel. Um, a lot of small businesses then say, I can't afford to, to, we just do Facebook. I can't afford to do all these other things like TV and radio and outdoor. And of course that's true. But what I'm saying is adopt four or five different channels. I'm not saying they have to be TV and radio. There are channels that are more suitable for smaller brands. Um, some of them more digital, for example, but there are others. All I'm saying is make sure you still have that uh, integrated mix of different tools. One of them, for example, is the founder uh, uh, herself or himself in the sense that later on with brands, the brand itself is more interesting. But in the early stages, it can be a really smart play to use founder-based PR. Mm. People are more interested in the story of people that have created a brand than the brand itself. That's a, and, and obviously what you do is you bastardize your own story a little bit to position the brand appropriately. But stuff like that can still work. So I do think it's still multi-channel. Just the channels are different than the, the bigger brand ones. And how does that change then? So uh, the founder story, uh, we sort of speak about sort of 5, 10, 15 years as, as, as a small business. And then hopefully one graduates, you become a, a not so small business. What's, yeah. that, what's that transition look like to you in terms of, either the founder story specifically, or is there any sort of notable things that you observe that sort of happen at that stage where it's like, ah, that's interesting from a marketing perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. What I've been lucky enough to follow a couple of brands that became billion dollar brands mm -hmm. and worked for them much earlier before they were. And what a couple of things are a kind of horrible step that always goes wrong, right? The, the most common one is is just growth in general gets to be a problem. So at a certain point, if you've got 15 or 25 employees, you can understand the brand from hanging out with the founder and knowing what was going on and chatting with everyone else. At a certain point beyond that, 20 million quid, 25, 25 employees, or the first foreign country you go into, it tends to all go horribly wrong because what got you to here will not get you to there. And, and so what that all means, fascinatingly, is things that were organic up until this point must now become artificial. And people like me were brought in for, for brands because essentially the scaling up process now needed to go to a different level. And it's almost a shame, right? But you can only get so far. I worked for Benefit Cosmetics when it was much smaller. And Benefit had twin founders, amazing women, Jean and Jane. And you, you would literally be able to understand the brand by sitting in an office within 50 meters of them. You would get it, trust me. But at some point, you don't get that anymore. You're too big and you've got offices and stuff. So what happens is what was once natural and organic becomes for every brand of size, an artificial thing, not in a bad way, but it has to become managed and less organic. And that's one of the big moments in the evolution of a brand. Can you do that? presumably you can only do that once you get to a certain size there's no way to there's no benefit to doing it early uh presumably there's not but there's ways to game uh growth into it the boys that set up um new is it new not nudie what was the what's your best-selling fruit smoothie in innocent 
Yeah, Innocent. The boys that set up Innocent were all management consultants from McKinsey. So they thought, well, that's probably not the greatest story. So they <laughs> they went to, I think it was a town fair and said, should we give up our day jobs to launch this, yeah. this smoothie brand and have a try of it and throw it in the yes or the no box? Mm. And that was a brilliant way to kind of create a different sort of story that they could then sell later. You know, it's like Bezos buying a house with a garage mm -hmm. to launch his business in. Yeah. He didn't have a car. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to have a garage to say, I launched my business in a garage. He knew exactly what he was doing, right? So, yeah, there's ways to game it to some degree. So you sort of set it up in an organic way, but really you've got plans to grow from the beginning. Yeah. But I tell you, unless you've done it once before, and very few people have, the bumbling organic stuff in the end becomes very important to the success of many brands. You know, I couldn't tell you how many times a, a silly mistake has become the genesis of the real story of the brands. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, there's too much of that that goes on that you'd want to reduce it too much. Yeah, no, you know, I, I agree. And, you know, we speak about the marketing meetup story all the time you know, all the time, because that's, that's the most important thing that people go, aha, I get it. I'm just, I'm curious, because you've gone through the gears quickly with a mini MBA as a business, you know, as, as, a, as a product and as a business. And I, I wondered whether you, you already had eyes on it being a, a medium large business, or whether there's anything that sort of surprised you as you've been in that, that small business. Yeah. And reflected on it. Gone, oh, that's we, we, we became more business to business than I thought, right? I, I did some pretty, what turned out to be accurate calculations of how many people that read Marketing Week we could convert to do the course. And that turned out to be pretty good. I mean, surprisingly good, really. But, but what I didn't factor in was corporate interest in, in putting their team, you know, we serve a lot of big companies now. That bit, I just didn't, expect for some reason um and i think that was that's probably the bit that it makes the business much less bumpy right because you have a hundred multinational clients each giving you a certain number of marketers each year which naturally turns over so that became a wonderful part of the business right and and that bit i just didn't even think about that bit came out of the blue the the other bit that's really blown me away though you got to remember, you got to appreciate the humor of all of this Joe right so my job at LVMH for many years for many occasions was go into one of their brands work with the founders to sort things out and then you know leave it and I did that a lot with a lot of famous founders for a lot of famous brands I never ever thought I'd end up being the difficult you know, unusual founder at the, at the center of it when I'd spent so many years servicing those people. That's the, that's the great irony of it all. I never saw any of that coming. Nice. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing that. It, it, it's great to get that personal experience. I, I love that beyond, beyond the theories and, and even the practice which you shared today. I, I think it's fascinating the, the journey that you've been on. Um, I'm appreciative that it's now 10 past two where you are and, and, and you've mentioned uh an early start as well before we got going so like I, I think it's it's in the in the interest of kindness um then like we should say thank you very much mate thank you for taking the time as my you pleasure have. um uh a, a great way to start the session uh with with the message but also some super practical takeaways um 
everyone watching in today, uh, you have the opportunity to uh, get a placement on uh, the mini MBA. Uh, the instructions for that will be after. Uh, it will be in the in the follow up email. Uh, so all I can say for the meantime is, is thank you, Mark, and, and thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, it's been a fantastic session, unsurprisingly, and uh, appreciate every one of you for uh, for taking the time in the chat feature as well. Honestly, it makes it so, so special. Well, that said, uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>